0: Hello. Welcome to Conversations in Calvinism. I'm Dan Chappa, and I'm joined, as always, by Turret and Fan, and today we have a very special guest, or I should say a very special returning guest, and I'm very happy to uh, have him back on the program. Um, David Lewis, uh, you know, obviously you've been on the program before, but I'm glad to see you uh, back and Uh, engaged in online uh, theology discussions and also just to get to hang out with my friends. So uh, how are you doing, David? And uh, if you could tell the audience, just remind everybody a little bit about yourself. That'd be great.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, My name is David Lewis, and uh, 41 years old, married with four kids. Um, I've been in full-time ministry for 17 years now. Uh, My main ministry is I work at Adult and Teen Challenge, christian drug and alcohol treatment center for adult men uh doing full-time discipleship evangelism there and uh i started a page called apologetics from the attic right before covid and been doing that for a while been taking breaks on it like you said um i don't know how you guys have put up all the content you've put up in the last like month alone (laughs) you guys are machines every time i look on my facebook notification bell it's like oh live again but I appreciate you guys having me on, and I'm excited about having this discussion.
0: Yeah, I've been taken to saying that Turton fan is a unicorn.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and then just, some, and, and just something about me, just, you know, I, I have actually, I forget when this was, it was maybe mid 2020 into 2021. I was actually on Dr. Flower's channel multiple times. He had me on as a guest. So, so you know, that's just, I don't know if it gives me any more credibility, but. You know, he did welcome me on his channel a couple of times and we had some good discussions on this exact topic, too. It always devolved into what it always does with Dr. Flowers as well. You know, the the total inability isn't true, which he is hitting on the heart of the debate a lot of times like that. If total inability is true, then his position kind of falls apart. So he has to keep attacking it over and over and over again. So but we had some good discussions on. I think this will be good to to do.
2: I had a tweet today responding to something that Soteriology one oh one had posted, I think also today. I had seen it today and then I, you know, I took a little screenshot of the tweet and responded to it. Uh but it's not on the topic of total depravity. And we did we planned this independently of that, although that particular tweet has gotten a lot of attention, I think, because it's, you know, a contentious point. So unrelated topic just happens to co-align today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So today's uh, uh, topic is um, total depravity is not brain damage. And that's a it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's actually not too far off from what I I think is being said. Um, But uh, so I'll I'll play a a clip. But this is all in the context of so um, on Tim Stratton's program. um, He had um, four guests, uh, um, Brian, uh, Dr. Brian Abbas Abbasiano Mm -hmm. as well as Andrew, and then Dustin, and then uh, Dr. Layton Flowers were on the program from the provisionist side. And they went uh, back and forth in, in that program. And then there's been just a series of exchanges um, since that time. And then, um, then fr- frankly, Dr. Flowers uh, um, put, put out, so he was buried in snow, and so he buried us under about 10 hours with the content. Uh, there's no way, there's no other way to say it other than, you know, he, he uh, was very prolific in the last couple of days in putting out uh, materials on his side. And it's going to be um, quite a bit to dig through uh, and respond to it all. Um, so, but the one point I wanted to bring out is this uh, argument that he uh, and uh, Warren McGrew are making on Total Depravity. Um, so this argument is kind of repeated through, throughout, throughout the, frankly, the 10 hours worth of content that he's putting out on this topic recently. Um, but, uh, it's a repeated point. So, um, Warren's got a pretty clear articulation of it. So if you guys want, I can just play a brief clip and then we can just start talking about, uh, about this argument. If it, uh, if that sounds good to you guys. So far, so good. Okay. All right. Let's see what we got.
3: Warren. yeah i mean um one of the one of the things that um that I've, I've really tried to focus on in my criticism of this augustinian anthropology is that it's an assault on our god-given faculties um now arminianism will then say well god kind of restores in a temporary prevenient sort of way these god-given faculties um but that seems that seems to cast doubt um and, and, and call our God-given faculties into question, which would then seem to undermine any confidence that we are proceeding in, in, in truth. And so for me, it seems, it seems to add more of a stumbling block. It seems to undermine uh, our confidence in, in being able to, to understand what's being presented to us. Um, it, it undermines our confidence in, you know, our, our walk with the Lord. Um, and so for me, I, I see, I see that Augustinian anthropology as, as, um, and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be very careful and kind here. I, I tend towards polemical uh, language, but I see it as an assault on our our God given faculties, while claiming to restore them to reliability. Um, and that's that's a real problem for me because I don't see that in the text, and then it, it seems to negate and undermine any sort of confidence we have interacting with that um, because it's an appeal to a work that is not articulated in the text. And so how do we know what that looks like? How do we know what that manifests itself into our lives from a um, practical standpoint? How, how are we going to interact? How are we going to identify? Um, and uh, and so it, it seems to be an assault on our God-given faculties while claiming to restore them. And, and my point is, is well, There are god-given faculties we may we may misuse them but that's where the truth coming and and says hey uh that's not what you're supposed to do this is what you're supposed to do or here's some truth and we can interact and and experience that and we're culpable for that and um it it, i don't know it 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 seems to negate that reliability i I talked
0: okay yeah so i just wanted to play that uh that that clip so um Let's uh, let's start here, I guess. Um, well, I'll I'll, st- I'll start with you guys. So, um, wh- what I'm hearing from Warren is uh, basically that you know we have God-given mental faculties, mental capabilities, and that if total depravity is true, then we it, our our God-given mental ca- capabilities are diminished or destroyed because we can't understand. Things And if we can't understand some things and we can't understand anything um, in then it becomes an epistemic problem across the board because now we can't even trust our own mental faculties. Um, so I guess what do you guys make of that argument? Is that pr- presenting total depravity in a way you would accept? And, you know, how, how do you how would you respond to Warren on this point?
2: I, you first, David, I guess, unless you want me to go first.
3: No, I can
1: go first. I mean, the you know, so, you know, uh, I know it's not in vogue to, to invoke Pelagianism, but he invoked Augustinianism in the clip. He calls it, what did he call it, an Augustinian anthropology, right? So yeah. just remember, in the debate between Pelagians and Augustine, one of the, the people don't realize this about Pelagius, he felt like he was defending the honor of god in his view because his view was that god is dishonored if he commands you to do something that you're unable to do right so that's not honoring to god so if god's command giving you a command you ought to do this right well you ought to be able to do it why would god command you to do something that he knows you can't do he's given you the faculties as warren says If God's telling you to do something, right, he must, the assumption is you have the faculties to do it. And of course, Augustine came along and said, no, there's a fundamental misunderstanding here. The whole point of grace is that God is inviting you to cry out to him in prayer so that he can give you the gift to do what he commands, right? The thing that Pelagius hated most about Augustine historically when Augustine said, command what you will and give what you command right i i I would i would wonder what warren would do he would i think he would go apoplectic if we asked him what do you think about that saying of augustine but that's really what is going on here so it sounds good it sounds reasonable well well well, no this makes you have god-given faculties we are disparaging how god made us with this Augustinian anthropology. But I think my response would be, well, you're disparaging the grace of God. And so for me, and who's somebody who does day in and day out ministry with people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and I'm trying to get them to come to Christ, right? Like, I just wonder how this stuff works out practically. So Warren wouldn't actually pray with someone to ask God to help their fallenness come to repent and believe. I highly doubt it. But like, that's to me where where his theology goes, like, and same thing with with Dr. Flowers, like, are we actually, in their system, do they actually, and I'm sure they do, this is where Spurgeon's whole, you've heard many Arminian sermons, but you've never heard an Arminian prayer, his famous quote. You can talk about how, well, we don't believe any of this, but I'm sure they pray that God would come upon people's faculties to help them believe the gospel, right? So, And Warren, he mentioned it's polemical, so I think it's polemical. So that's all I have to say about it at this point. I just think that understanding that context of it, that this is about the ought equals can fallacy, I've heard it called before. In other words, if God says you ought to do something, that means you can do it. And of course, if we're Protestants with Luther, God says we ought to keep his law. But we actually can't, right? We can't keep his law. Why? Because God set it up that way. So we will cry out to him and receive his righteousness and turn from our own righteousness. That's why God commands us to do the impossible. And I just think reform theology and classical Arminianism as well recognizes that you extend that category into repentance and faith too. God says we ought to repent and believe, but we can't by nature. So that's why we cry out to him to help us repent and believe. But I think these guys just don't even want to go no 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 you have to be able to repent and believe like by nature because they feel like that dishonors God and like you said it makes us broken people or something like that
0: yeah what do what are your thoughts here tur turn fan
2: well i mean i'm I'm aware that you know warren's uh you know, website, I guess, is the, you know, idol killer uh, website that he, that it's described as promoting classic pre-Augustinian Orthodox Christian doctrine and exposing extra biblical corrupt philosophies and presuppositions. That's the, that's kind of the, the sales pitch for it. So, I mean, at least as far as I saw, he doesn't come out and, and do what, some people have done and go around saying Saint Pelagius and all this kind of thing. So I don't think he would, although I don't know, explicitly identify his position with that of Augustine's most famous opponent on this particular issue. Uh, you know, but you know his own self-identification is what it is. I mean, I mean, if I'm not that concerned so much about his you know, what what he likes to call himself. I would say, I don't know whether he's completely grasped the point of original sin. I I would offer him, let's say, the Westminster Larger Catechism, WLC, not William Lane Craig, but the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 25 says, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, uh, which I I believe is a point that uh, Warren denies. The want of that righteousness wherein he was created, I don't know whether Warren denies that or not. And the corruption of his nature, that's the part that Warren seems to be focused on attacking here, whereby he is, and this is referring to the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually which is commonly called original sin and from which do proceed all actual transgressions so the this is i this is not talking about a problem with the faculties of like some faculty that's been removed from man but about the the bent of those faculties so it's not that man doesn't have the ability to go after what man wants to go after it's just that he is aside from god's grace focused on going after evil he has all of those faculties but they're misdirected. They're, they're directed towards evil. They're directed towards pursuing his own lusts and everything else. And that's how this, you know, that's like a, uh, obviously a Westminster standards description of it, but the scriptures have similar descriptions. And one example would be something like Romans eight, seven, which says the carnal mind is enmity against God because it's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. And, uh, Descriptions like the, uh, even like, even it says, uh, I'm trying to think if this is a good example or not, but an example would be maybe Galatians 4 5 to redeem them that were under the law. uh, I'm sorry, so back up for a second. Uh, Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So this idea of transfer from bondage to sonship. That's uh, good. So there's just uh, some initial thoughts.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I, I agree. So, I mean, there's there's a lot to cover, so we could touch on the whole Augustine uh, question also. So I, I, I do think that um, probably Warren and Layton's audience are allergic to augustine or something like that and and maybe uh, actually um perhaps in in part because of ken wilson's work and things like that so there, there's something about that that's um meant to um i guess be, be a bit pejorative but um you know what did augustine say that they object to i think that's where it's going to come down to right because augustine said a lot of things augustine had a great book on the trinity it's one of the best you know i've seen on the trinity um you know i hope they don't disagree with that i suspect i'm I'm sure leighton doesn't and i suspect warren doesn't also although he Mm -hmm. does have some interesting views about uh, christology but um anyway setting the question of augustine to the side um Let's uh, touch on this idea of our mental faculties themselves, and if they're um, so. I, th- I think he, part of the issue, and that uh, you guys are probably well in, in tune on this on these points, are you know from the Roman Catholic side, from the way they define faith is different than the way the early reformers defined faith. Right, so the Roman Catholic said, "Well, faith is simply mental assent," and they left out the trust aspect. And then, interestingly, within the Southern Baptist or like out of especially out of Dallas Theological Seminary with St. Hodges and stuff like that, within Baptist churches, um, including the SBC, there's a big uh, push from the free grace side to do the same thing to say that faith is mental assent. Um, There. They they will carve out, um, they'll carve out trust, but they'll also sometimes carve out repentance from sin, and say that faith is just isolated down to just intellectual mental assent. So, you know, I guess to your point, Turton Pam, when I think of intellectual assent, it's one thing to say, you know from, let's say, from apologetic arguments, you could you could come, a person could come to the conclusion there is a God, that you could come to the conclusion that um, the best explanation for the resurrection is that Jesus actually rose from the dead or something like that based on apologetics. There's a big difference between that and repenting from your sins and then turning your life and your future and your eternal destiny over to Christ and trust in him and him alone for your salvation and to commit yourself to him as, as your Lord. And... You know, to, to your point, it's it's like, um, um, well, to use an analogy. So I'm sitting in a chair right now, right? But, okay, so I could look at the engineering specs for the chair. I could, you know, kick the chair. I could, you know, just examine the chair and say, okay, yeah, it's a good chair. But I, I hate the chair. I'm not going to trust it to keep me off the floor. Or you could say, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a good chair, and I'm going to trust it. So I'll, I'll kind of look at it that way. Like, you know, do we commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? The reason we don't is the passage, one of the passages you talked about, Terrapin fan which is we're at enmity with God. We're his enemy, right? And and so it, the issue isn't so much that, oh, we can't figure it out. It's too complicated. Total depravity isn't total stupidity. It's that, it's that we don't, Love God, we hate, uh, without God's grace, we hate Him, and love is of God, anyways. That, I mean, that's my um, in a nutshell, I guess, the way I, I see it. Um, I don't know if you guys uh want to touch on, on some of the other topics, um, yeah, or, or comment on that more, comment more on Augustine. I'm uh, interested
2: in just exploring this further if you'd like to explore this further. If you'll indulge me for about uh, 60 seconds, this, uh, just just uh, 60 seconds and then I will uh, be ready to move on to the next uh, point. I just wanted to highlight what I'm talking about. When I say that, let's see, hopefully I find it quickly. Uh, I hope I, I can find it at all. I know it's here. I should have I should have started push pushing this up earlier. Sorry. I uh, oh well, maybe I can't find it. I I thought I had it handy. And now I just don't see it. Well, let me try it this way. When first share from here and then Share this tab instead. There you go. So this is Warren McGrew's website. With where he takes this uh, statue to the reform, this bow relief uh, statue. Of the Reformers oh, wow. put skulls on them. Says dead men follow dead men. Describes uh, uh, says Augie's first step with mommy, Mama Manny and Papa Plato, and puts this uh, like a his head on a baby and puts a skull on Calvin and stuff like that. So that's kind of the you know the level of. Uh, when he says that he can get polemic, uh, that's that's what he's talking about. He's you know, fairly extreme, and uh, he's he clearly doesn't want to have any association with Reformed churches, and I would assume that most Reformed churches would not accept him. I'm not sure whether they would accept him as a member, but I'm sure they wouldn't ordain him or anything like that. So uh, you know, he's he very much does not want to be part of that.
0: Well... Um... You know, I I, I think um, they, obviously they're going to say, oh well, doesn't, the church history doesn't matter. Let's go to the scripture or something like that. Um, so I mean, I, I guess let okay. So the, the let's talk let's talk about Augustine a little bit. So I like I said Augustine did a lot of stuff he wrote a lot not just on pelagianism he wrote a ton of stuff so what is it about augustine that they don't like right you you know do they not like his book confessions confessions is amazing city of god um is is really deep work right so are you know what what is it that they have a concern with and if it's, if it's down to, okay, well, it's his anti-Pelagian writings that came later in life and that sort of thing, um, do, even if, for the sake of argument, the um, Pelagius didn't teach the worst aspects of what is now known as Pelagianism, Augustine opposed those, and don't they oppose those also? So... You know, I, I think where they would start to to push back and, and say, okay, well, he started to, uh, to teach some things that um, look a lot like Calvinism or that sort of thing. So, um, you know, whether that's uh, that's that's fair game, whether Augustine was the first to, to do that, uh, teach a strong doctrine of original sin, total depravity, irresistible grace, you know, that, that, may, that may well be. Um, but that's to me, that's a, um, that's only a small portion of, of what he was up to. I don't know. I mean, am I wrong about that? You guys know Augustine better than I do. But um, I don't know. What do you guys think?
2: Uh, well, Augustine you know, produced a lot of works. And his main controversies were the Donatist controversy and the Pelagian controversy. But he was involved in other ones as well. Those are the two big ones that he's known for, you know. The Reformed churches tend not to agree so much with Augustine on in the Donatist controversy, but do tend to agree with him more on the Pelagian controversy. And it's not the Donatist controversy that's the issue; that's not the reason why he's disliked. But I mean, it's not just this issue that Warren has a problem with him. This this little uh, notion of bringing in Plato into the picture is a shot at the you know the 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 orthodox view of the nature of god and things like that so he, he warren has a number of other you know another number of reasons he doesn't like augustine but augustine's works in the west are some of the most well preserved and extensive writings partly because he was so well respected after his death and um uh, And maybe for other reasons as well, but he was a good writer. He was, you know, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't, um, you know, omniscient or infallible or anything like that. But, you know, he, he thought through a lot of things and he wrote extensively and we still have a lot of his works. And we also have a lot of works by people who, uh, followed after, you know, in one way or another after him. So that's, uh, you know, he casts a long shadow in, in church history, especially in the, in the, uh, in the West. So
1: yeah, so what I would say about it is uh the way God in his providence in church history functioned is that orthodoxy was defined in light of heresy, right? So until a heretic came along, the church didn't have a reason to provide a response in the form of a creed, right? Or someone like an augustine so you know i'm, I'm on warren's website too Turton, and he has a very helpful tab doctrine and he has his own confession of faith on there so just to just to point this out right so his first statement we affirm our belief in one living god who exists eternally revealed in three persons god the father the son god the holy spirit These three are one in essence, but distinct in person and function. Now, many of those terms were actually invented by church fathers clarifying against Arius. Like God is three persons, right? That's not a biblical terminology. That's terminology in the Latin that is used to respond to these heretics. Well, so is he going to... So, in other words, he recognizes in that statement of faith that there's helpful language that has been provided to us by the church fathers to define the Trinity, right? But then when it comes to Augustine, oh, we're, we're, we're no, he's a Manichaean Gnostic who is Platonic. Like, there's a lot of Platonic ideas in that statement in his doctrine tab right there, right? The, the fathers drew from Platonism to define the Trinity against Arius, like the famous homoousia that he's of one being with the father that's a platonic idea a word that's a non-biblical word to define so i just want to point that out so when it comes to augustine it's like you can't pick or choose that's why historic like sassanianism they just go they'll go all in and say the doctrine of the trinity is platonic too we deny that right like warren just doesn't push it all the way through his system so i just want to point that out first secondly everyone needs to understand warren's an open theist and this is what always fascinates me about dr flowers bringing warren onto his program over and over again like he's an open theist and Layton's a southern baptist and actually in the in the chat over there somebody did ask about what do you guys think about the doctrine of original sin in um the southern baptist convention the what's it called the baptist faith and message right because what that says and warren Warren would reject it. I'll read it real yeah, quick. So, Go ahead. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. So just so you know, I'm, I'm personally a Southern Baptist and I agree with the Baptist faith in the message. Yeah,
1: because what it says is this. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit. Here's where Warren would not like it. They inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. He would reject the thing that they inherit in nature. Guarantee you, he'd be like, No, nah, I don't like that language. We did not inherit a nature. And here's how I know this. Let's read his doctrine. He says, Um, where is it? It's about the fourth or fifth, it's
2: maybe fifth or sixth paragraph of that.
1: Yeah. The one that says, we, we affirm we affirm that sin is not hereditary or genetic, it is relational, a matter of the heart and born from our disobedience. Um, no, that's not what he says. He says we're born innocent somewhere. Where is that?
2: That's under the, we affirm that Adam, the first man, it's about halfway through that paragraph. Forward. Yeah,
1: willfully disobey God and sin bring death in the world. Due to shame and their sin, Adam and Eve withdrew from God and attempted to hide themselves. Sin still produces the same desire to further withdraw from God and all their sin will die. Okay, here it is. Um, they are created like their parents in his image. They are born innocent, wholly dependent on him in the fallen world and actively seeks to kill and corrupt them. So in other words, that I mean, then that's classic Pelagianism and the idea of that the only impact of original sin was on the environment not on the person and that's that is classic Pelagian thought there's no sense in which and which Leighton does not affirm as far as I know Leighton is fairly orthodox on his understanding of original sin as far as I know that's why it's interesting that he brings I mean anti-Calvinists cause strange bedfellows it really does so because when it comes to like your view of God's omniscience, right? You can array an open theist with a simple foreknowledge with a Molinist with, you know, and they all are anti-Calvinist. And it's like, that's always puzzled me about these guys. Like they, they, they pull themselves together, but they, they themselves don't have a consistent view on things like God's omniscience, which, you know, you don't have to, I mean, that's a debated topic, but, um, but yeah, the Augustine thing, like I was on Leighton's program once and I started quizzing him on church history. And at one point he just kind of shut the conversation down. And he actually said, I was I was shocked, although I wasn't surprised. He said, I don't care what a church father says, I go by the Bible. And it was just like, okay. Yeah, like yeah. and it's like it's there's a there's a latent <laughs> biblicism in this movement of these guys where they literally they they're biblicists they're solo scriptura. we we don't need to look at what people said before you know we just look at the scriptures and that's it yeah, right. and it's and it you know and it doesn't it doesn't move the conversation forward it really doesn't
0: right yeah theology should be done in the context of the church and even if um you know other authorities aren't infallible authorities only scripture is infallible it doesn't mean that there's not authorities it's just they're not infallible. It's like a like a doctor, my doctor isn't infallible. But if he tells me, you know, hey, you have cancer, here's some treatments, I'm not going to like, start figuring out how to treat cancer on my own. And, you know, diagnose cancer on my own. (laughs) Like, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to go with what he says. It's just, he's not infallible. And I know that, but it doesn't mean that he's not an authority. But, 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 you know, I'm sympathetic to the point. So I mean, with that said, if you get um, so Turton Fed, you you brought up the passage uh, uh, Romans eight. Are you guys okay? You want to look at that a little bit here? Um, might be. Uh, yeah, I mean I'd be happy to dig that dig into that a bit. Uh, where are we? Oh another. Ah, huh. ah this one. Sorry. They're both they're both <laughs> then, on the same page. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. No, we're we're good. So okay. Let me see. Let me see if I can make this big enough. Can we see it? Can you guys see that? Okay. Um, you guys okay with the, uh, just, just stepping through this? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So starting with Romans 8, 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. So for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is at enmity with God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So the first, the first point. okay. So you've got, um, the, why is it that, um, they, there are the flesh do mind, the things of the flesh. It's, because the carnal mind is at enmity with God. And let me see. So I think the word for because is pretty specific. Um, and I think it really on account of because. Right? So it's, it's pretty clear. So it is the it is the reason is because we're at enmity with God. So now I, I want to ask you guys if you agree with this or not. But. You know, I take that enmity to go. The first reference to that enmity is all the way back in the Garden, right? That the um, there is enmity between the seed of the woman, which is the Messiah Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent. Right? It wasn't there before the fall, and it's a result of the fall that there's an enmity between Satan's children. And Christ. And that is a result of the fall. It's a natural condition. And it's why we mind the things of the flesh. Then it goes on. There's another four. Four. Okay. So why is it that we're at enmity with God? Why is the carnal mind at enmity with God? It's subject to the law of God. And it can't be subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. So that they which are the flesh cannot Please, God. And so the way I would say this is like, okay, so to, you know, in fairness to Slayton, what he's going to basically say is, oh, well, just because we can't, you know, perfectly obey the God, the law all the time without regeneration, that and we can't work our way to heaven doesn't mean we can't uh, confess that fact and ask Jesus to save us. Right. And he basically draws a hard distinction between the law and the gospel, which I agree with all the hard distinction between the law and the gospel. But the problem, I think, is that the believing the gospel is believing and believing the gospel is good. Peter calls it gold to believe. Um, in First Corinthians 13, it's one of the three carnal virtues: faith, hope, and love. It's Faith is the right thing to do. It is good in that sense. But it's not because of any goodness of faith that God justifies believers. But the way I'd say it is this it's like, okay, so a nuclear bomb goes off, and there's what, you know, there's, you know, 613 casualties, which is each and every law of Moses. (laughs) They all died, but there's one survivor you know we can believe well wait wait a minute like how do you know i i i just don't understand but um if we can if we can just naturally believe if the carnal mind can believe the gospel that's pleasing to god so i i don't know i don't see any way around this i mean what do you i mean uh what do you what do you
2: guys think All
1: uh, right, David? Oh, yeah, I can start. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's the... So, yeah, that that would be, I think, Leighton's response would be, well, this isn't about repentance and faith. This is about the law of God, subjecting yourself to the law of God. And I know Leighton is orthodox in the sense of he would say, we're not able to obey the law of God, so therefore we need Christ's righteousness and we need to believe. Um, I don't know if he... I seem to remember that he does similar things with this text, though, that he does with first Corinthians two, where he wants to say that, well, no, Paul's talking to Christians there because look, if you keep reading, he says they're carnally minded, and they're still infants and they need milk, not meat. So when it says you're unable to, you know, first Corinthians two fourteen, those who are of cannot understand, he'll say, Well, that's because they're choosing to be immature, and that's why they can't understand. I'm not sure, because it's harder to do that with this text, because Paul is very clear that there's two groups of people, right? There's those who are in the flesh. And then, by the way, in the Greek, just an interesting little tidbit, this is one of the places where Paul, he's using the third person to describe this other group that are in the flesh, and then he switches to second person, you, you. And in the Greek, it's very clear that he does that in the Romans passage. He'll say, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in you. And then he switches to third person. But them that are in the flesh don't belong to Christ or anyone that does not have the spirit of Christ. So there's two distinct groups here. You either have the spirit or you don't. Now, I'd wonder what you guys would, because this is what he, because I don't know if Dan and Turton, you're familiar with how they deal with First Corinthians 2.14 they try to say that the natural man that's the carnal Christian right is I mean am I wrong about that I think I think that's how they try to get around he,
0: yeah I, th- I think you're I think you're right I think um, the I think they especially look at the next chapter um, where it talks about uh, carnal Christians I guess first Corinthians three let's just go to it um, for I, brethren, could not speak unto to you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ, I have fed you mm-hmm. with milk and not meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For ye are yet carnal, whereas there is among you envy and strife and divisions. Anyways, um, I could keep going, but there is, I, I think, I think, um It, to me, it comes down to, well, what is the context for the First Corinthians 2.14? Is it looking at the issue of spiritual maturity? And so there, there is this aspect beforehand where Paul says, you know, I didn't use fancy words, but I used plain speech and that sort of thing. Um, but then if you look at First Corinthians 1, it's Um, A little, a slightly different focus from Paul, where, um, you let's see. Um, So the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish, but to us that are saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made the foolishness? Uh, "...foolish the wisdom of the world, for after that in the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the world knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign that the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them that are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God." Um, because the foolishness of God is wiser than them and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So I can keep going. But so to me, it's, it's whether this context is more the inbound side of first Corinthians one, where the issue is so salvation, not just maturity, but salvation. It's about believing the gospel where the um, Jews are seeking a sign and the Greeks are seeking wisdom. And then, it's a, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the, the Greeks. So that's 100% about salvation and conversion and everything like that. So if, if 1 Corinthians 2.14 is understood in that sense, then it's devastating to Leighton's position. If it's taking in the sense of, well, it's about the style of preaching. Do you use fancy words or not use fancy words? Or more to the point, is it about um, spiritual maturity? Then you can kind of see how it's a less uh, of a direct uh, hit on latent's Le- position. And I think it's a tough issue to, to 100% nail to the ground. I don't know. Um,
1: what What do you What do you guys uh, What do you guys think? Well, no, I agree with that. I think that. To chapter 3, he's switching to then addressing the specific issues that he's going to address with the Corinthians, right? I think before chapter 3, you know, starting at 1, going into 2 there, he's comparing and contrasting the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that comes from God. And um, and I don't want to shift to topics, but just because we're on this, you know, the, the other thing that's devastating about Leighton's position about these passages is where he says that the means of preaching the gospel is sufficient in and of itself, to bring about faith right and this passage does not say that the preaching of the cross it in and of itself does not produce faith it's actually rejected right the 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 preaching of the cross comes forth and it's foolishness where he kind of says because that's one of the biggest things with him like no the means are sufficient like the gospel is the power of god the means are sufficient he says that like a million times in order to reject prevenient grace, which I'm a Calvinist, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, I don't necessarily agree with prevenient grace, but I appreciate prevenient grace from the classical Arminian position because it's preserving the biblical truth that there needs to be some internal work of the Spirit that accompanies the preaching of the gospel as the means, right? Which Leighton rejects, which which... The, he rejects it just such a level. This is why I go back to this, like real practical, right? If late I'm sure Layton doesn't do this. When he, because I know he's like an evangelist, right? He works for like an evang- evangelistic organization in Texas, right? With the Baptists. I guarantee you when Layton preaches an evangelistic message, he doesn't, before he preaches, say, God, my preaching is sufficient to bring about faith. So I don't really need your help, God. <laughs> I, I don't need. I don't need your Holy Spirit to accompany my preaching. I just know that if I preach, it will have an influence on everyone in my, in my thing. And I'm like, that's that's what we're hearing him say. That's what I'm hearing him say. And I guarantee See, yeah. you, if I prayed with him before he preached, he would appreciate me saying, "Dear God, please empower Layton's preaching with your Spirit." and affect the minds and hearts of the hearers as he preaches. And it seems like he doesn't even want to allow that to be something that, because that concedes too much to the Calvinists. Because it, 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 well, no, we're admitting total inability at that point, because we're asking God to help people believe, right? And even Dan used the classical Arminian, would be like, well, of course God has to help people believe. It's, you know, it's called prevenient grace. And Layton goes, no, 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 no prevenient grace. No, we don't even like that. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling,
2: but. I'm, I'm honored to see that someone from the Soteriology 101 account is watching and commenting. The first comment was, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, uh, which is either quotation or a paraphrase of scripture. And then it says, how they believe on one whom they have not heard implies that hearing is what they need to hear. Uh, and then he has a third comment says, and hear to mm-hmm. believe. The, the challenge of that is while there's the difference between something being necessary and something being sufficient so that the the flaw in that particular reasoning just by saying well that verse says you have to be able to hear the preaching in order to believe that's that indicates that god's word is necessary it doesn't say that it's sufficient and that's why it's interesting when when it comes to this point when arguing with calvinists about things like the father drawing us to him no one can come unto no one can come to uh, me unless the father who sent me draws him that's that's what the text of scripture says and it's pointed out sometimes well well that maybe that's all a necessary but not sufficient cause that's one of the non-calvinist pushbacks to the calvinist use of that text but when it comes to trying to suggest that people have a natural ability to believe the gospel apart from being given the gift of faith, now that's the same, The, the somehow there's a disconnect to not be able to see that issue. And I think that it, it goes beyond that. I mean, we have, we, there are scriptures that specifically say is given to you to believe there are descriptions of faith as a gift of God, as the uh, fruit of the spirit there's there's so many descriptions of this and the question is yes you could probably say that even our life and our breath and everything we have is a gift from god but contextually is that what the apostle means when he says things like that when he says that it's given to you to believe and to suffer does he mean that's just what everybody gets just as by nature of being a human that doesn't seem to be what paul means and it doesn't seem to be the right interpretation so uh oh and i see warren has uh joined as well he says he's jumped in uh at the 16 minute mark and catching up to us so quickly quickly if you need to make any devastating points now's your opportunity (laughs) look
1: at the time (laughs) feathers. and as far as i know uh there's no one else except Dr. Flowers who uh, controls the soteriology 101 account so I'm I'm pretty sure that's him in the flesh as well.
2: I I leave that up to him. I know he has
1: people who help him and so forth so. And I and I have a funny story No, One time, in
0: the, in oh, the spirit in the spirit he's in there.
1: <laughs> and I have a I have a funny story real quick. One time he 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 hit me up and said that he was driving across Texas and he wanted to do a program and he was going to do it on his phone through StreamYard, right? i'll I'll never forget that program but go ahead and, and it was and, and so what happened was his phone kept cutting out but i had a stable connection so at one point i just said this was my plot all along i have hijacked the soteriology 101 page to <laughs> preach calvinism to all his followers it was pretty funny i thought it was funny anyway yeah it, but but dude, no but no I, I mean i
0: remember i remember in that program when he said that he's gonna see pelagius in heaven and
1: I I was like, wow. Okay. But so <laughs> so I mean, so Turret and I agree with everything you said. And I just so this is where, like, for me, um, and Dr. Flowers, if you want me to come back on your program, I would like to discuss some of these things. So, like the the practicalities of it, like you know, if we theo- theologize about all this stuff a lot, right? Like, you know, I'm here's my theology, here's your theology, which is great. I'm all about that. But like, like I said, the practicalities of it is really what so Dr. Flowers, you're on here. So do you pray before you preach that the Holy Spirit has an impact in real time on the people hearing your preaching? Now, I think you do, but my understanding of your position is you don't need to, right? Because the, the everything's preloaded by the Spirit in the Word of God. Right. The, the means are sufficient. Right. He even quoted John. Um, These are written so that you might believe, implying that all someone needs to do is read the gospel of John. And there will be some. Like, not an internal. He likes to call it a mystical work to try to muddy the waters. I don't believe in this mystical work. Yeah, I don't I don't like to be called a mystic. I'm not going to say I'm a mystic, but like. Is there any sense in which, and this is Dan, this is why it's weird. I'm a Calvinist and I'm totally on your side on this issue. I mean, who knew? Calvinist Arminians battling it out together in the trenches here because you're saying that, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, Dan. Well, no, we have to maintain that there's an internal work of the Spirit that must accompany the external preaching of the gospel, right? Yeah,
0: I mean, so I I was I had pulled this verse up, but I'll go ahead and read it now. Right. I planted Apollos water and God gave the increase. The planting and watering has to do with the external preaching of the gospel. And on Leighton's view, it's kind of like I plant God gave the increase through me planting.
2: (laughs) Right. Well that's uh, yeah, no, God gives the increase. And that makes it so that neither is the one that plants anything nor the one that waters. So you although they are instrumental and although it is key that the pre, the preacher is key and without the preacher, there's there's no way for the person to believe because they wouldn't know these things without the preacher. but nevertheless, their role is so minimized by verse seven that you have uh, the statement that they're not anything but God who gives the increase.
0: Yeah, so, uh, okay. Um, So uh, Leighton asked the question, or Dr. Flowers asked the question, don't you think so? This is referring to plagius. Don't you think so, Dan, given what we know about what plagius actually believed? Um, No. Well, in his... In the commentary on Romans, which I understand there's some textual issues with the commentary on Romans, he, he literally says God is gracious in that, no, God God's grace is he gives graciously to those that earn salvation. And on, he commented on the passage of, um, so it's not of him that wills and of him that runs, but God that gives the increase. His comment was that God looks into the future and see who's worthy to give um, his mercy, to, to give his grace to, and that's who he gives his grace to. Um, so, um, no, I don't, I don't find Pelagius' uh, profession of faith credible at all. Even the letter to, um, uh, what's the lady's name, Damaris, Dem- um, has some just shocking comments in it. And I think that one, uh, there's less controversy as to whether he actually said it, but... I haven't seen evidence that he didn't make those comments in this Romans commentary, so um, I don't find Pelagius' uh, uh, statement of uh, faith credible. But we'll, I mean, and, and, I'll be—I'll be, I'll be look—I'll be the first one to, to, to give him a big hug if I if I see him in the afterlife. But I don't.
1: Well, I don't there, there's me. also there's also a very simple um, misunderstanding of church history there. <laughs> we don't need to know what pelagius believed necessarily because augustine was actually responding more to a guy named julian and a guy named celestius who were the disciples of pelagius and we have a lot of their writings so so that so like that it's, it's a very overly simplistic thing to just say well Pelagius didn't believe what they say he believed. Okay, fine, you can make that comment because we don't have a lot of Pelagius extant writings. We just don't. Okay. So you can make that argument from silence. It's an argument from silence, because Pelagius, because Augustine actually, that's not the only person he was responding to. I just want to make that point. So if, if you're if you want to study like historical theology, it's not that simplistic that well we don't know what Pelagius believed. August like because Augustine won the day, all his stuff was burned, so we don't know what really he believed. Well, no, there's a lot of other writings out there that Pelagius was or Augustine was responding to. I just want to make that point that's there. There were more people who were his disciples. Right. Okay. So I, I, I a,
0: uh, Warren is making the point that Dr. Bonner excluded Pelagius's commentary on Romans, and. Frankly, we're going to need Turn and Fan to go in there and sort through what's authentic and what isn't. He's the he's the only one. Uh, um, it'd, be, it'd be it be it will be tough uh, to go through his commentary and the but see my, my understanding of when I read the preface to his Romans commentary is that mm-hmm. people took his commentary and scrubbed it to to make it sound more orthodox. That people, um, but. I do understand that there are some interpolations into his commentary and that sort of thing. It's a tough one. It it's it there's a, um and there's probably only so much manuscript evidence that we can go back to. But uh but then again, I think it's it's wrong to exclude his entire commentary on Romans. I, I at least I'm not aware that anyone is saying that the entire he wrote nothing that's in the commentary with his name on it.
1: And also, one know. more one, one more church history point. Um, Pelagius's letter to um, Demetrius right. is a very important text of Pelagius. That Pelagius is very clear on his beliefs about original sin in that letter. If anyone wants to look into that, Google that. It'll come right up, his letter to Demetrius. So people like to focus on the commentary on Romans, but it really... That, that letter, is, he's very clear on what is... And he's responding directly to, you know, the Augustinian views in his letter to Demetrius. And it's, he's very clear on what he believes about it.
0: Yeah. Oh, whew, hot potato here. Uh, inbound. <laughs> um Yeah. I mean, uh, so do you believe uh, Augustine is going to be in heaven? given his view on the baptismal regeneration of infants. Um, So Augustine specifically says that uh, although we do things that are meritorious, including things like baptism, that it's not based on any merit that God justifies us. So that's, that's quite a big difference. Um, So yeah, I, I guess I have a lot less trouble there. I don't, I don't I don't necessarily say that anyone that holds to infant baptismal regeneration is lost but um it's certainly a mistaken position but you know like let's take for example the Lutheran side of okay so they believe in infant baptismal regeneration but they say that God what God is doing is planting the seeds of faith in the infant well so they're still sola fide even though they hold to infant baptismal regeneration so I think it's a big mistake but um, no, I don't think that uh, um, under it could potentially be done in ways that undermine the gospel, but it could be potentially done in ways that p- perhaps don't. I don't know. Um, this is a hot potato, but uh, um, you guys are. I would just uh,
1: want I would just want Leighton to re-ask the question. And instead of putting the name Augustine, put Luther. Just so he can out himself that he's not a true Protestant. Like, you know, like, like I know Leighton well enough. That's a loaded question that he just that, that he didn't ask that question because he he's interested in our, your opinion. He He's saying, well, if you're going to follow Augustine, follow him all the way is basically what I think he's getting at there. And it's like, well, Luther taught the same thing. And, you know, if uh, Leighton's a Protestant, as far as I know, so he would not question. Maybe he would question. Luther. I, I don't know. Maybe he does.
2: Yeah, the, the, there's a difference between saying that something is an error and saying that it, it's an error that's so central to the faith that it's a damnable heresy. There's there are degrees of error; not every error is equally as severe. But the idea of suggesting that all mankind is not, you know, denying something like the universality, the universal sinfulness of human beings is troubling and i noticed that like in warren's description in his doctrinal statement he starts off by saying that babies are innocent and but then he goes on to say the flesh is weak and from this state of innocence all men eventually give in to the tempter overcome by the nature they have cultivated and go astray after their own desires and i i you know, so I think he's trying to avoid saying that he thinks there are some people who just are, I guess, saved at that at a young age and never fall into sin. But the whatever it is that he's saying there, I, I'm not sure his motivation. But I, I think that I heard the explanation he gave in the clip that we played. It seemed as though he was actually objecting. Not so much for scriptural reasons as for philosophical reasons, because he seems to believe that if human beings are born in a state of total depravity and that they are inclined against God from that time period, then and that apart from God giving them the gift of faith or giving them prevenient grace or any regard that either one for him it seems to be just as bad that somehow then this is unfair on God's part to demand them to evangelical obedience, not not having already given them that ability to believe and that they have to have that ability naturally and intrinsically, not as a result of universal prevenient grace, but as, as a result of an inherent capability of theirs. And that, that's where he seems to come back to, oh, they're God-given, such and such. And yet, I mean, either way, whether it's, I mean, Calvinists will, will deny universal prevenient grace in that sense. But the idea that the Arminian concepts of prevenient grace, whether it's universal or not, the, that idea is, it's, it's puzzling why he feels the need to fight that particular battle. And I think since it's more targeted at prevenient grace, I wonder, Dan, if that's something that's more your point to respond to.
0: Yeah, I think so. And then we can get back to scripture real soon. But I just wanted to throw this one up there and touch on it. So I appreciate this point, Leighton. So I'm not the one throwing people out of heaven here, guys. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. You know, I, um, um, uh, Right. And no one wants to be you know, heaven's bouncer, so to speak. Right? Like, that's not our job. Understood. And, uh, uh, well, well um, point, point taken, uh, Dr. Lars. Okay. Um, Dan, before you so, move on, I just,
1: can I throw out, I just want to throw out a resource. I tried to post it in the chat, but I, and it didn't seem like it came up. But there's this really good article that I found. I sent it to you, Dan. Um, the title of it is, Um, how are people saved, the major views of salvation with a focus on Wesleyan perspectives and their implications. I wish I could put that in the chat. But it's, it's, and you actually have to pay for it. It's in a journal. But it's a really good, for those who might be tuning in who are like, what the heck are these people talking about? He gives a really good overview of the spectrum of Pelagianism, -Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, semi-Augustinianism, and Augustinianism. And he really does a great job breaking it down, what each of you says about the grace of God and monergism and synergism. So um, maybe I'll try to put it in the chat so people can actually see that title because it's a long title. But I, I'm always interested in like people who might be novices who don't even know what the heck we're talking about, like to get a lay of the land you know, on these topics because it's pretty important because it is an important topic.
0: I appreciate it. So um, I was wondering if you guys wanted to talk about the 1 Corinthians 12, 3 passage. That's the, the passage that's kind of been bouncing around the inner webs uh, recently on this issue. And I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts as well on it. Um, I mean, I can start from uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, and I would not have you be ignorant, but... Um, Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore, I give to you, understand, that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus Christ a curse, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. And I think in particular, um, this idea that no man can, uh, due to my like, power, and no man is able no man, that includes me, you, and everybody else, is able to say Jesus is Lord, which is a basic tenet of the faith, but, except, or but, by, or it's an end, so it could be in, like, in the power of, or in the either location, like, in the Holy Spirit, but probably more so in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um. It seems like a pretty straightforward claim that there's an, an inability without the Holy Spirit to without the being in the power of the Holy Spirit to affirm the basic tenet of the gospel that Jesus is Lord. Um, so I don't know if you guys, um, what what you guys make of this text? Um, we can talk about it a little bit, but do you think this is a strong uh text or does it does it support an inability to believe the gospel um without being in the power of the holy spirit
1: so i you know first of all i will concede that this is not the strongest text to go to because of the context it's in so like there's much stronger texts that talk about that the spirit of god um enables one to confess jesus is lord um however it says what it says no man can say jesus is lord but by the holy ghost so the only way around that is to maybe say i mean i don't know what's what's the way around it i mean i didn't i i'll admit leighton if you're i didn't listen to the that part of your response so i don't and I don't want to misrepresent it. I don't, I don't even know what. He, maybe Dan, you can explain what their exegesis is of so this. There,
0: uh, so there's three. There's Plan A, Plan B, and Plan C. All right. So Plan A, uh, from the provision from the provision aside is to say, "Oh, this is just about spiritual gifts. It's not about conversion." Plan B is to say, "Okay, it is about conversion, but it is about." Um, um, through instrumental means, as in the by, by the Holy Spirit inspiring the gospel and filling preachers, uh, the Holy Spirit filled preachers preaching the gospel. That's the uh, means by which we can people can say that Jesus is Lord. And then Plan C is to say, okay, no, it's not a, it's not about the gospel per se. It's about professing like verbally professing faith, like a public declaration of faith and, and that sort of thing. So like in in a sequence sort of way, the person first believes and then they're filled with the Holy spirit. And then they can make a public pr- declaration of their faith. So those are the three uh, responses that have been given. Um, if you guys want, I could touch on all three as to why I think none of them work, but uh I mean, I'm also here really to, to hear you guys out also. So if you, guys wanna, if you guys wanna touch on this passage, I'd
2: love to hear your thoughts. So I will try to comment on this. I do have a prior engagement and I, I I'll probably have to leave shortly after we do this sure. or, or maybe even before we finish it, I don't know. Uh, but if I, do, if I do leave early, you guys, please continue to you know, carry on. I, there seems to be a lot of interest in the chat as well about this subject. So the, the text, it's almost self-evident that this is about the spiritual gifts. You see, now concerning spiritual gifts, obviously that word gifts is supplied by the translators in verse 1, but in verse 4 it says, now there are diversity of gifts, gifts about the same spirit. And this. so the idea this is about, in its primary sense, is about spiritual gifts. I grant, but... I would say you have to realize that just that the in the apostles' understanding, as evidenced in Acts 15, the giving of spiritual gifts, these extraordinary gifts that are talked about here in 1 Corinthians, the giving of those gifts was a sign that the person was a believer, that they had been saved. And that's why that is one of the conclusive evidences given for the absence of a need to have circumcision because the Holy Spirit indwelt and gave these spiritual, extraordinary spiritual gifts to Gentiles without them first being circumcised in the experience of the apostles. So Cornelius came to Peter. He was a God-fearer but he received the Holy Spirit without first getting circumcised. And there's other experiences as well the apostles had along the same line, that there is this granting of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to people. That's an evidence of their salvation. Now, if an unbeliever were able to, if an, if there's kind of this test from verse three, it's the unbelievers who are going to be calling Jesus accursed, and it's the believers who are going to be calling Jesus Lord. Now, is this the primary point of the text, to distinguish believers from unbelievers? No, it's really to distinguish false prophets from real. But the using the analogy of Acts 15, using that principle that the apostles themselves used in Acts 15, the, the idea we should see that same point, that this is an this is the result of the work of the Holy spirit. Now, as I said, this alone might be, might not be enough to prove the point, but it does seem like there's a link, not simply between the miraculous gifts themselves, because it doesn't say no one, let's let's say, it doesn't say no one can raise the dead, but by the Holy ghost, or no one can speak in Arabic except by the Holy ghost. Or no one can speak with an unknown tongue except by the Holy Ghost. What it says is no one can say that Jesus is Lord, which is a profession of faith. And so that idea that no one can profess faith and likewise calling Jesus accursed is a profession of unbelief. So there's, if the person has the Spirit of God, they're not going to do that. If they don't have the Spirit, if they but if they have the spirit of God, that's going to be the basis upon which they say that Jesus is the Lord. So that the idea that it's just because it's spiritual gifts is therefore it's irrelevant. I can't agree with that.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, to me, it's that every believer has this common baseline of having the spirit. And so in that sense, we're all um, equally and united in the same, but then the spirit gives individual gifts. So this believer gets this, if this one gets this, but we all have that same common foundation. So, the, you know, verse the the verse three is kind of like this preamble to getting into the spiritual gifts and it, divvying them up. But it, it has to start with this foundation and this common baseline that we all have is all believers have the spirit. Um, so I, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't see how, yeah. So I, I th- but I think Layton would, would perhaps agree, even though he suggested that, uh, he, I think he'd perhaps agree at this point regarding his second explanation of the, well, it's through means it's through the preach. It's basically by the Holy spirit, inspiring the Bible and inspiring or filling preachers to preach the Bible or to preach the gospel. Um, so I I think I have, At least two problems with that. The first is, and and I'm going to switch to NASB, or yeah, just because, or New King James or something, uh, just a little easier to read. But um, the first is uh, the except by the Spirit, that's either, it's an end, so it's either in or in the power of the Holy Spirit, which doesn't at all sound, especially in Paul, when Paul uses the expression in the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about instrumental means, but the personal active role of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. But more to the point in the outbound context, there are diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. There's difference of ministry, but the same Lord. There are differences of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For the one is given the uh, word of wisdom through the spirit, another, the word of knowledge, through the same spirit, another faith by the same spirit, another, the gift of healings by the same spirit, another one, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another, discerning of spirits, to another, different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each individually as he wills. This is definitely talking about the Holy Spirit's personal, individual, active role in that person's life. What are we going to say? But it's through the preaching of the gospel that people can perform, you know, miracles and prophesy, discern spirits, uh, speak in tongues. No, it's the Holy Spirit in that person working inside that person. It's a direct, personal, active role that the Holy Spirit has taken, not indirectly um, by the inspiration of scripture 2000 years ago, but what he's doing right then that right there in the person, that's how these things happen. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I think that's the second problem. Now the, th- the third uh, plan C so to speak is okay. Well, it's talking about the um, just a profession of faith and that I think the the, the biggest issues are, Um, that, you know, so what, what are we saying here? So like that the person can believe, then be filled with the Spirit, and then make the public declaration. But they are unable to make the public declaration without first being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But they're able to believe without it. But what is believing except saying this to yourself, right? So it's almost like you... Without the Holy Spirit's help, you can say to yourself that Jesus is Lord. But to say it to somebody else, now you need the Holy Spirit. Uh, what? <laughs> I don't. I don't see how that could. I don't see how that could be. And you know why couldn't this just be? Um, yeah. I mean, so, so you have to affirm it in your own heart first, which is to say it to yourself, right? So to say it outwardly. Um, you know, the, and now there's a, there's a second problem also, which is, okay. So the problem is there's so many passages of scripture that just say, "Hey, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me." Or people will say, "Lord, Lord," but um, you know, He'll say, "Depart from me, that never knew you." So people do say the words without the Holy Spirit, right? That's not what Paul means is just the external expression he's talking about the external expression from an internal belief of the same expression and it has to be genuine and what's the difference maker it's having the holy spirit right so why is it some people say the word jesus is lord and they aren't saved and they aren't to be trusted and other people say it and are to be trusted because they have the Holy Spirit and they are the ones that you know are going to have these uh, sign gifts so they're both saying that Jesus is Lord but they also have these sign gifts um, and you can you can trust them so I mean I don't know I don't think any of the the plan a, B or C works with this text and I think it's just a straightforward text. no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Um. Okay, I've I've said a I've said a mouthful. Um. So, um, you guys, uh, you guys want to either add more or, or look at a different text, or maybe yeah, wrap it up. I mean, I'm. Well, I I'm, well I, well, I would there. like,
1: well I would like to, if I don't know if I can I think I don't think I can put comments up, but no, but if you like, if you tell us we could put them up. Yeah, the one where it's Leighton, um, someone who refuses to believe the gospel can't confess Jesus as Lord. How does that prove people are born unable to believe the gospel?
2: Okay, Like
1: like that's the nub of the thing. Like Leighton saying that there's no text of scripture that says people are unable to believe the gospel by nature. People by nature are able to respond to the gospel, right? So, I don't know if I can share my screen. I think, Dan, can. but I think yeah, I can. think I, I can't. Mean, let me see.
2: Once you do, just let us know, and I think Dan or myself or both can uh, can sh- activate it. I think you have to kind of like put it into the channel. There it is. You ready for us to share it?
1: Yeah. Because I think this is why this is that article I was talking about, and I think this article really moves the conversation forward. Right. Now, Leighton, if you're watching, you're not going to like this. Look at the, there's the boogeyman. Send me play. He calls it the boogeyman. But (laughs) I'm not trying to boogeyman you, Leighton. But I think that this, because this is from a classical Wesleyan Arminian perspective, this guy writes, right? And just this sentence right here, this isn't going to take a long time. So let let me just read this part. Because I know Leighton would agree with everything in this paragraph. Because of humanity's marred nature, everyone sins and stands in need of divine forgiveness and redemption. People cannot save themselves. No amount of good works or acts of repentance can atone for sin. If human beings are going to experience redemption, they must find it in the saving work of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. To realize personally Christ's salvation, minimally, there must be a recognition of sin, true repentance, and an exercise of faith in Jesus Christ, all of which is within humanity's capability. People have the power within themselves to repent, seek God, and believe in Christ at any time they choose when they do this god responds by forgiving and redeeming them through christ this is a human divine synergism now just for context this author is an armenian but he's going to reject this view for what he calls semi-augustinianism so and it's 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 it's, it's helpful this article cuz he like shifts the categories just enough where you start thinking a little bit differently than how this debate's usually framed anyway the work of humanity is to repent and believe then the work of god is to forgive and redeem Human initiative as priority, not because humanity has the most important work in salvation, which I know Leighton affirms. He, he would say, we're not saying that faith is the work you do that's pleasing to God that saves you. He's very clear about that. God then responds by well, bestowing forgiveness and regeneration on them. Okay, here's the, here's the key sentence. Perhaps the defining mark of semi-Pelagianism is the belief that all human beings, though impaired by original sin, have the power to move toward God and repent and believe the gospel at any moment they decide. OK, so prevenient grace right in the means of preaching the gospel. The issue is. Is it that anybody on planet Earth can just decide to repent and believe right now? I know Leighton wouldn't agree with that, right? He would say that the gospel has to be preached to them. Like Romans 10, how can they hear, how can they believe if no one preaches them, right? So then the next question is this, okay, so you're not a inclusivist, right? Or somebody who says, well, anybody, as long as they seek the God, they understand God will save them. I know Leighton rejects that. Okay, so we've made some progress. Mm-hmm. Now, they have to hear the gospel. Now, the next question is this, is he, is he actually claiming that if you have a crowd of 250 people gathered into some evangelistic meeting, right, and the evangelist gets up there and preached, that every single of those 250 people are being influenced in the exact same way by that preaching? Now, to me, his position, he would have to say yes. Like, right, the means are sufficient, he'll say but i don't i don't know how you can consistently hold to that so you mean to tell me all 250 people were in this in their thinking in their desires of their heart their emotions were all moved in the exact same manner by the holy spirit with no differentiation in that event of preaching like that's where i just this whole thing breaks down to me like no we know that the holy spirit is moving in different ways in different people Right. Some people, there was a tiny seed planted that they'll forget about and they'll remember it six months from now. Right. There's someone else who was moved in that moment to actually repent of their sins and believe the gospel. But the common factor is there is some influence of the Holy Spirit in that mechanism. I don't know if I'm making sense, but like to me, this really gets to the nub of this thing between provisionism and Arminianism. It's like Arminianism, at least like. Holds together the idea that no, the Holy Spirit freely works how He wants through the preaching of the gospel in different ways with different people at different times. It seems to me that Layton, because he doesn't want to concede to the Calvinists by removing prevenient grace, actually makes it so it doesn't. And I'm like I said, I'm sure he doesn't preach like this. I guarantee you, he prays, dear God, please. Let your Holy Spirit come and make my preaching effective. But it seems like his position, he should pray like this. Dear God, I don't need your help because the means are sufficient. The Holy Spirit has already imbued my preaching with power. I don't need you to help me. It's already done. You know, like, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but that's like, that's where I, when, that's what frustrates me about this whole conversation is that's where it really comes down to is that's what I think Layton's position ends up leading you to.
0: Yeah. I mean, talk about traditional Baptist. So the word we were always told, it was woo, right? Like p- please, when the altar call was happening, and altar calls are far less popular today than they were back in the day when I was growing up or whatever. But we were always told, Hey, if you're already a believer, be praying right now for the Holy spirit to move for the Holy spirit to woo people. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what we, every, every, Sunday night, every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, like it's just feeding into my head. Um, yeah, I don't
1: know. So, so Leighton, um, Leighton, Leighton comment again, Leighton, I, I, I will go back and listen to your podcast on prayer, but you're in the chat. Do you pray before you preach that the Holy Spirit has impact on people that accompanies your preaching or not? Like it's a very simple question. Like do you do that or not? Do you, do you pray, Holy Spirit, please come and assist me as I preach the gospel and let it have an impact on my minds and hearts that hear my message. Like and if you say no to that, like that's a serious problem to me and I don't think he does. So that's where the inconsistency comes about. And the other thing too and Dan we've discussed this before in Layton's position his whole thing about hardening, right? So isn't his theology also teach that there could be people under his hearing that have hardened themselves, and literally they can't become unhardened unless they choose to? You know that his whole like judicial hardening thing. Once they once you're once you've hardened yourself, you're basically unable to believe at that point, right? That's how he interprets all the passages of the parables in John six. So like what how do you pray? Like in other words, how would he pray for people who are hardened? in his theology that are under the sound of his voice they've rebelled like too much cuz because his system doesn't seem like the spirit does anything in that case except maybe the gospel softens. i don't know i'm i'm i'm, I'm rambling but uh, and he says i don't he says i don't understand his position which okay um, somebody else had a uh, throughout this
0: random wild comment <laughs> that and Fandy, want to comment on your comment?
2: I have to agree with whoever that might be. No, obviously it's me. <laughs> uh, so you no, know, the reason for quoting it is there's you know this, this is one of those passages, and you notice that it says that whose heart the Lord opened. Some people will say that notice that it says she's already worshiping God. So she's associated presumably with the uh, Jews of that uh, town, but there's a, key, the, there's a reason why Luke mentions that Lydia's heart was opened and it's so that she attended to the things which were spoken. And unfortunately the limit of the text cut off the rest, but it's the things that are spoken by Paul. In other words, to the gospel message that he's preaching there in Philippi. And, I think it's Philip I. Pretty sure. Could be wrong, but uh, I think the point is: Why mention this idea? It's not that Lydia had heart damage or brain damage, that she, per se. It it's really that the the Holy Spirit has an instrumental work that goes beyond inspiring scripture. It goes beyond uh, that. Not that inspiring scripture is some small thing, but it does. There is an opening of the heart. That's there, so that she takes heed to the things that are spoken by Paul. It's not just that Paul spoke the things, but also the Spirit acting with it. With that, and that's an important aspect of soteriology: the understanding that the Holy Spirit works with the preaching of the gospel. Not it can work preparatory to it. So you have you know people who are prepared for the gospel before the gospel is preached to them. You can have the Holy Spirit. Doing it in the case of the one that you quoted earlier, Dan, where you said, Paul, plant, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So in that case, it's almost like the timing is, is reversed. There's first Paul and Apollos preaching, but then subsequently the Holy Spirit makes something come of that in the person. And here it's sort of like in the same time. So here the Lord opens her hearts so that she pays attention to what Paul says. That's really important. It's one, you know, if it, otherwise, you end up with the different kinds of seeds. You know, you have the kind of seeds that just kind of fall by the wayside, and the the difference there is, is what God does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think people sometimes look at the um, uh, Lydia and and say, okay, well, she was already saved or something like that. But I mean, I, um, it's an interesting discussion. But I, I look at the passages about Cornelius and where. He's given the message of salvation. Let me see. Um, let me see if I can find it real quickly.
1: Yeah, um, and, that, and and Dan, what well, you're finding that 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 is the response I've heard is well, Lydia was a god, was described as a worshiper of God or a God fearer. So she had already taken an action to make her more open when paul came right so that's that's what you'll hear or cornelius is the same well cornelius was a god fearer, and he offered worship to god and god saw that he did that and responded
2: but it's still something that god needed to do you know it's all the more impressive it's all the more it shows all the more the necessity if it's something that god wanted to do in the case of lydia than in the case of somebody who isn't a god fearer, isn't already a practicing jew in those time, but just hadn't yet received the gospel. That, you know, if if that's already as kind of an advanced state and God still, does, Luke is still inspired to mention that God opened her heart, then, you know, that's uh, that just shows how much worse off is someone there who doesn't believe at all and isn't a God-fearer. And so anyway, I, I know, Dan, you had, I think you were about to say something. I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: Um, no, go ahead. Um, well, actually, no. I think it looks like it's in Acts eleven fourteen. Who will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved? Right uh, here, let me, here. Let me share, share my screen. Um, let's switch back here. Yeah. So this is talking about Cornelius. Peter is going to meet Cornelius, and let's see. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and he said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. OK, so if you go back and, and the description of Cornelius is is uh, is impressive, uh, right? He's a. He, uh, so he's a devout man, one who fears God with his household. He gives alms generously and he prays to God always. Right. And then he gets an angel, a message from an angel saying, come to him. And yet Peter is going to give him the message by which he's going to be saved. Right. <laughs> Anyways. Um, That's a good point. I, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Lydia's, uh, you know, what's good for the. But what's good if that's the way it works with Cornelius, then it's probably the same way with with Lydia. But uh, anyways, it's, I mean, it's well. Anyways, I'll I'll leave it at that.
1: But see, the the reason why these texts don't affect the provisionists is because their presupposition is always the synergistic. Well, no, well, he did something first. I mean, he Layton's in the chat right now, quoting from the Psalms, saying, um. The man who fears the Lord, him will the Lord instruct in his ways, right? So, okay, so, you know, by your own libertarian free will, you fear the Lord. So Cornelius, by his own free will, did all this. Like, like like God didn't draw him, like, through the Old Testament scriptures, through the synagogue, right through whatever means. It was just Cornelius, like, like, in other words, you just keep pushing the question back to this presuppositional thing of, did Cornelius have the ability to seek God without God first giving him grace? Right. Like you're re- we're reading things into the text here. Like th- that's why these. That's why you can tell this is a presuppositional commitment. So any text you throw at the provisionist, they'll just be like, "Well, no, no, no. Look, I'll show you some scriptures where it says if you fear the Lord, He'll reveal Himself to you. That's what Cornelius did." But then that's just begging the question, right? Why did Cornelius fear the Lord? Right? Well, uh, why did he do that? So, yeah, you can just, you just, push, is step back.
0: Yeah. just put, push it a step back. Just push it a step back. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again into fear. Right? Because the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Where do you think the fear comes from? Just It just pushes it a step back.
1: And that's why I keep saying this. If I sat in, and I don't know if Layton puts his stuff online. I know he's got a million things against Calvinism, but like if he put online, like just where he's not even talking about Calvinism, he's just up preaching the gospel, I would probably be saying amen to everything he says. Because I know he doesn't get up there and go, listen, everybody, don't worry about crying out to God right now. You have the inherent ability to believe and repent right now. Like just, just, just do it. Just do it. What do you, what's wrong with you people? Just repent and believe. You have the ability. Like I'm sure he doesn't preach like that. So it's like that's where you theologizing versus practical application is important. And I know he's in the chat saying that's not what I believe, but that's I know that's not what you believe because you don't practice it that way. But in your and, th- and that's why this is a lot of this is polemical, too. This is anti Calvinism. And now it's got to the point where and I knew this would happen years ago where the Armenians would have to step in and be like, yo, provisionists, you need to calm (laughs) down. Like, and that's why Roger Olson was one of the first ones that did that in 2019. And that was a very important interview where it became clear, wait a minute, he's even pushing against Roger Olson, right? Who, up to that point, we Calvinists were like, oh, Roger Olson, he's an Armenian, you know. then, Then we're going, oh, wait a minute, he's even challenging Roger Olson. In his understanding of grace, and Roger Olson in that interview is very clear: if we don't say what I'm saying, we are we we are semi-Pelagian. Like Olson himself says it. He says it to Leighton, and then if no one's seen that interview, watch the interview. Just Google Roger Olson Leighton Flowers; it comes right up. It's a fascinating listen. It really is to to get these like it, like I know we've done fifteen hours, you Tan, and all your guys, and then Leighton fifteen other hours. You know what I mean? But that's a nice concise like when you see Leighton talk to Roger Olson. If you're interested in these issues, it's a nice more concise way to say, okay, I see what the issues are here between Armenianism and Provisionism. I just want to point that out. it's a fascinating
0: yeah so um we probably need to start wrapping up but uh I would say that okay, so of the ten hours of Latent's hour Layton's materials uh uh recently on this topic, we've responded to about two minutes worth, so uh we're we're making good progress at this rate we will finish um um one day before yeshua returns um,
2: so hang on. Were there other comments that you wanted to get to from there? I know there have been a wealth of comments. Some of them are are ones I would rather not address right now, but there there might be some that are worthy of addressing that we haven't come to. I saw that Warren had to drop off earlier, so he's not here and just not participating because he's not here. Uh, Anything that you wanted especially to get to? Um, no,
0: I mean, I, from my side, I think, uh, you probably, uh, uh, this, this Yahoo starts, uh, posting more stuff. Anyways, <laughs>
1: um, <laughs> now, I want you to throw one up, uh, it, it, where he says, and David, do you preach by saying, I know some of you are predestined to believe and not others. So thank you. That, that's a very good response. No, I don't, because I don't believe the preaching of the gospel requires those issues to be brought up in that moment, you know. Like that's why both that tactic on both sides is that's what that's my whole point. I know Leighton doesn't say the things that he theologizes against the Calvinists when he preaches the gospel to people, just like the thing I theologize theologize against Arminians and non-Calvinists, I don't preach. I mean, that's the point. I'm trying to find unity, you know what I mean? Like A lot of us have the same basic gospel message, right? But when we get to this topic, we all lose our minds and start accusing one another of all this stuff. It's like, I get like, I don't know. I mean, I've met like, I don't know, Warren. If Warren's not on here, I don't know if Warren would evangelize with me on the street. Like, I would evangelize with Dan. I would, I would take. We could go street witnessing right now, brother. And I'm pretty sure we would pretty much be the same in terms of how we would present the gospel to an unbeliever. And I think I'd be the same with, with Layton. So I don't know. I, I, I'm a I'm type of guy who wants to get practical with this and say, are we really just throwing up a bunch of s- dust in the air when at the end of the day, we're all preaching the same basic gospel. Now, when it goes into practical things, like I would, re- like, that's hyper-Calvinism. I would totally be against a Calvinist who started his sermon by saying, listen, there's some of you in this room who are reprobate. Okay, and you will never understand what I'm saying, no matter what you do. You're predestined for hell. Okay, no, that's crazy. Just like I know Leighton doesn't say, listen, you guys don't need the help of the Holy Spirit to believe this morning. You don't. You don't even need to ask him for help. Just listen to what I'm saying and use your libertarian free will to respond to it because you are able. Don't listen to those nasty Calvinists. You are able to believe like he, he doesn't say that but and it's just a point of like you know the difference between the ivory tower theologizing and what goes on on the ground you know we need to remember that that's that's my last word so
2: i want to respond briefly to this point about i preach exactly what i believe and i don't change or hide anything i'm i if the implication is that that david would be trying to hide something by not bringing up matters that are the the meat rather than the milk there's a time for giving people the milk of the word and there's a time for getting into greater depth there's a reason why peter says that there are things in paul's letters that are difficult to understand that's not the pl- you don't start with the most difficult things to understand you start with the plain and and clear things like the sinfulness of mankind the need for repentance from sin and trust in christ for salvation from sin apart from which you can expect the punishment of Christ when he comes again to judge the world if we live that long. And if not, when we die, we will have to go and face God for our sins. And if we don't have Christ as our advocate, which we can only have through faith in him, then we will be condemned. And that that's the, that is a straightforward proclamation of the necessity of the gospel. It doesn't hide anything. It doesn't explain everything there is to explain. Absolutely, it doesn't. But it clearly and unmistakably presents the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who, when that, when that gospel preached is accompanied by the Holy Spirit in the heart of the person, they will believe. And you have to think, if someone is truly convinced that that is the case, that if they do not trust in Christ for salvation, they will eternally perish, that what person in the right mind wouldn't trust in Christ? It's the only logical thing to do. But people hear the gospel preached and they don't turn, not because it's not logical, but because they don't believe. And they don't believe not just because they voluntarily choose not to believe, like they have this conscious choice. Well, shall I believe or shall I not believe? And it's just this kind of ivory tower thing. A lot of times people hate God. They hate the idea of God. And you'll hear people say things like, well, if God is like he's described in the Bible, I would never believe in him. And it will take a, a miracle of the Holy Spirit, uh, the grace of God, to change them into that point where they will believe. But that's you know that doesn't mean that we h- we're hiding something just because we don't explain all of everything that's written in Paul's epistles to them. So I just wanted to address that point. It's not a, from my standpoint, at least, it's not a matter of hiding anything. I, d- I don't think it is from David's either.
1: No, I know so, I know that so was my last word, but I'm glad you because. A lot of times the way the, the non-Calvinists, the, you need to be consistent with what you believe. And you need to, it, you Calvinists should just straight up tell people you're either predestined to believe or you're a reprobate and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's like a, it's like a cheap tactic to me that, that really is not helpful, but it's, it, you'll see it a lot of times online calvinists should just say that god ordains baby rape they just need to come out and say it that's what they believe anyway like and they try you know they're trying to push you to like do this thing and it, it it's constant and you know i i don't think that i would i don't do that my point is i don't do that to the other side at least i try not to i try to engage their ideas and leave open room that okay they're, they're they're debating theology right now that this isn't, I'm not going to make them get up and say what they really believe behind the pulpit, but a lot of times you'll see them do that to Calvinists, they will, like you Calvinists are inconsistent, you're lying you're hiding things, you really believe in this absolute sovereignty predestination thing and you don't tell people about it, and I like that response to her and that's how I would say it too like Luther's famous quote in uh, his commentary in Romans that, you know, Paul. Romans 1 through 8, Paul is presenting the gospel, and then it's not till middle of 8 into 9 that he gets into the doctrine of predestination, because he says, I think he actually uses the same language you did. The milk needs to come first and then the meat later on.
0: Alrighty then. Uh, See, uh, the topic of wooing is alive and well in the comment thread. Um, I think I think the question is um, maybe okay. So Leighton is saying that the Holy Spirit does woo sinners, but when He's wooing them, He's not fixing total depravity. He's just wooing them. But then the question that's being asked is, does He need to woo them? And I'd be very interested in the answer to that. And is the is the wooing kind of through means so just by inspiring the God, in the Bible two thousand years ago? Is that all the wooing that there is, or if there's more, is that willing necessary? Um, oh, oh, oh,
1: oh! oh. Put, put that one up. Put that one up. Uh, yes, I work to persuade and pray. God helps me to do my best and entice sinners to come. This one. So, yeah. So, I'm not trying to parse your words, late, and That's not fair. You, it's just a little comment you made. But so do you. So you don't pray that God persuades and entices them. You pray that He helps you do that. That's what you pray before you preach. I mean, (laughs) uh, that's my point. Like, he doesn't pray that God does that. He just prays that God helps him do that. Because God doesn't do that. God doesn't persuade or help. That would be conceding too much to the Calvinist doctrine of total inability. See, we can't do that. So we just have to pray that God gives Leighton the ability to do those things. That's where I would have serious problems with provisionism right there, if that's really what he's saying. Okie dokey um, But hey, man, this is a, this is a pretty uh, live chat, man. You got Layton Flowers and Warren McGrew in here, man. <laughs> baby, seem innocent. Pretty cool.
0: Yes, it's not just baby seem um, innocent. I think First uh, First Corinthians says to be as innocent as uh, children, and they're innocent certainly within respect to acts their own acts of sin, whether they're um, guilty corporately in Adam or at least um, suffer the consequences of Adam's sin, that's a totally different issue. I mean, even look, e- even if somebody wants to say, oh well they 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 don't um, original sin doesn't include um, let's say for example it doesn't it, it doesn't include a, a sentence of damnation, a sentence of condemnation corporately but let's say they, they, they don't want to include that. Well, certainly the the baby is suffering many consequences, including mortality. Um, they're going to have to work by the spread of their brow. If it's a female, there's going to be uh, pain and childbearing. Um, they, the image of God is marred because of the fall. They're going to be at enmity with the Messiah. Um, all those things are the result of original sin. And... Yet there is a sense in which they're innocent, as First Corinthians says, and it's because they don't voluntarily and willfully commit sinful actions. So, anywho, um, well, we could we could go. Oh, man, I, I could go all night. Um, so, uh, but I am glad to have covered at least two minutes of the uh, two hours worth of the material that needs to be addressed.
2: <laughs> I'm I'm honored that. Uh, dr flowers decided to grace us with his presence here I'm sorry that we probably didn't address all of the points and questions he raised but time is limited and you know maybe we'll have a chance to go back through and answer more well as you said this is only a small part I think he mentioned there's a comment directed to you Dan I believe that says that he talked about something later on so there obviously uh, that's i Dan mentioned this as a multiple hours of comments were provided and we addressed one clip and that was only words from warren mcgrew i think in the clip not even anything from dr <laughs> flowers so but nevertheless uh i do appreciate both uh, warren and uh dr flowers participation so and thank you to david uh thanks for coming on and uh being a guest again here it's it's great to have you on
1: i appreciate you yeah. and, and and dr Flowers says david i also pray that the holy spirit woos sinners amen let's end on a high note amen dr Flowers. Right. i would pray that too he the holy spirit woos sinners absolutely amen <laughs> that's
0: right all right very good yes likewise i uh echo this comments david it, it, i appreciate you um uh, and your ministry and um both online and offline and uh you know, hope we get to have many more interactions to come here. So very good. Um, God be with you. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for joining. Also with you.